1: Is hair a material?
0: Our biscuits are material. Are crystals a material?
1: Is plastic a material?
0: Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material?
1: What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh to... at <laughs> question, And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I talk to printmaker Gemma Gunning. I started by asking Gemma how she first became a printmaker.
2: I got to be working full-time print through a serendipitous moment of going to the toilet at Somerset House and coming out and seeing a set of uh, Monoprints by John Virtue. So he's a London-based painter, printmaker, and they were absolutely ginormous and they're quite semi-representational of the landscape. And I had no idea what a monoprint was, so I went back to the technician at the print studio where I was studying and he demonstrated monoprinting and that was it, I was hooked. And I was hooked in the print room in particular because of the weight of the presses, the smell, you know, the inks, the chemicals, it's quite an all-encompassing experience. Um, and then I did a an internship at London Print Studio where I was introduced to metal and acid. And that was like, OK, this is hardcore printmaking. This is amazing. And people were doing it full time as a living. I was like, I want to be one of those people that, um, you know, use these two processes or two materials and work in this field full time and be um, not a master, but, you know, really fully understand the complexities of intaglio printmaking. Uh, So from that, I then did a full, I did a master's in printmaking and kind of started working with copper and ferric chloride. I then did an intern, not intern, a fellowship at the uh, London sitting girls at London Art College, working under a master printmaker called Jason Hicklin, who he had worked worked with Norman Ackroyd, who, in my opinion, is like the godfather of kind of um, of printing. And at that studio, they use nitric acid and zinc. So again, it's a different kind of... um, metal and acid to work with. So really understanding actually the different metals and the properties that they have and how they etch and the line and the tone that can be achieved with each one. Uh, And then in 2020, I set up my own print studio in Bristol called Bristol Print Atelier, where we basically do, we specialize in intaglio and lithographic processes. So as well as working with metal, I also work with stone lithography and plate lithography. So I am a technical instructor at the University of the West of England um, in the LIFO department, so I work there part-time. And then the rest of the time I'm making work based on
1: ruined buildings. So that's me in a nutshell. Love it. Um, the, the, you said a few words that I'd never heard before. The first is intaglia printing. What does that – is that the name of the process? How does that work?
2: Yeah, so intaglio. well, it's intaglia if you're Italian. I guess you don't pronounce the G. Got yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> So and it means in Latin incised. So when you're making an Intaglio print, so an Intaglio is kind of an umbrella of um, processes. So in that falls dry point, engraving, etching, and it's where you are creating marks beneath the surface of a matrix. Um so when you are making an etching, you're applying a hard ground, which is acid resist, and then you're using a a uh, point to reveal the wax or the, re- reveal the metal through the wax and you are placing that in acid. And the acid is doing all the hard work, really. It's biting down and it's it's making those lines that will hold ink when mm-hmm. you come to print it. And So that's
1: Intaglio. Ah, okay. Um, so it would be really nice to hear, you mentioned as well, sort of a few materials that you use. Um, would you be able to kind of take us through the process of um, how you would make one of these prints
2: yeah so the the so um i choose a method of printmaking to suit um what i'm recording if that makes sense so say okay. so i'm recording a building that has a lot of crumbling masonry i will then choose to use stone lithography because the, the textures and marks that can be achieved through the materials that I use resonate with that place that I'm recording. So with lithography, I can use a substance called touche, which is grease suspended in water. And when you puddle that onto limestone, because it's got such a fine grain surface, um, it will then reticulate on the stone. So it will kind of create marks that resemble contours and they're very organic and it does look like the the masonry that is kind of crumbling in these buildings um so yeah that's kind of that's how I choose to um use lithography and then for etching if it's like an industrial building um I will then use uh maybe a zinc plate because it can be it can really be battered. Mm. So that's what I love about etching is the fact that these plates can go in and out of the acid multiple times. And you can start building up layers of surface textures and marks. So using Sugar Lift, which I know um, a previous podcast mm-hmm. person you've interviewed uses sugar as well. Um, and that is just an amazing process to use just to get more painterly marks.
1: And again, more of
2: an organic kind of feel to the plate at uh, the plate.
1: Mm, okay. And will be sure that's not no it is it is so it'd be great so those are the materials that you choose um and then the process involves creating your design I guess and and doing these kind of iterative acid dips
2: yes so the with um so with copper it etches a lot more slower than Mm. zinc and nitric acid so if I have an image that I know I want a lot of tonal value I will use copper because it's slower and I can control the amount of tonal marks that I can achieve mm. so I could maybe get up to 10 tones with a copper copper etching but with zinc it etches so quickly in nitric acid that you really have to you know kind of keep your eye on the plate and what's happening mm. um, but again with they're two very different kind of processes so with nitric acid and and the zinc, you can physically see what's happening in, in the um, in the acid bath. Whereas with copper and ferric chloride, because ferric chloride is that ionic color, you can't really see what's going on. So again, it's this real mystery of what's happening kind of beneath the surface of the acid bath, which is one of the things I love about etching is that there's always a surprise when you never really know what's going on. Mm. Um, and it, And like the weather, so, like, if I was to go to the studio today, it's six degrees here. The plate would just take about an hour to etch, but in the right. summer, it would take half an hour. Wow! So it's very, um, yeah. The temperature affects what you're making, and um, so yeah. Um, so to, oh, I'll describe how to make a plate now because I realise I haven't actually described that to you. Um, so to make a, an etching, I originally will start with. A hard ground which is a hard ground wax which is made of bitumen and beeswax and i will apply that with a roller onto the plate and then i will smoke the plate which is quite a fun part so i will clamp the plate and i will then get um, a set of tapers and basically hold the plate upside down and pass the flame um kind of underneath the plate so that it's giving the wax a chance to remelt and absorb all the soot from the, the flame, mm-hmm. which will then blacken, but also harden the plate. So the reason why we do this is so that when you just have the wax, it's quite golden. So you it's quite hard to see where you've drawn, but when you've got a black blackened plate or right. a smoked plate, you can physically see where you've kind of drawn the marks and which is a beautiful process because you're revealing this copper underneath or the zinc underneath mm. and it's you know, quite a, a magical process. Um, And then that goes into the acid bath. Mm -hmm. And then once it's been etched, it comes out. I will then proof the plate, which means just kind of seeing what the state, what state it's in. Um, So as I make prints, each proof is called a state. So state one, state two, Mm -hmm. state three. And I normally get to about state eight or nine when I've completed it and it's ready to addition. So usually after have done a hard ground and I've got my skeletal composition off a ruined building or in the landscape, uh, I will then apply an aquatint. Mm. And an aquatint is rosin. So it's rosin particles really finely ground up, which they use for like biolimbos. To, mm. um, so we use it in print to give a tooth to a plate. So we have as a a printmaker we have these big boxes with a paddle fan inside which has load of rosin and you spin the spin the spin the paddle fan really fast and that kicks up a cloud dust of rosin which when you put your plate in it falls like snow on the surface Mm. and when that is then melted to the plate it's got lots of um, particles for the acid to fall in between each particle to then give you a range of tone so it goes in and out the acid and depending on the length of time it's gone into the acid depends on how dark the tone will be um so I'll do that like maybe three or four times and I'll do a sugar lift and then I'll move do another hard ground then I've maybe messed it up so I'll do an open bite which means I basically it's like an eraser so you mm. get rid of all the tone I've made then put another hard ground on top it's just one of those forever evolving uh, processes it's like mm. a battle it's like push and pull all the time I quite like that about print printmaking
1: it sounds like a very long process as well it is it is each step
2: is very long and it's got lots of um steps but I think once you've understand understood what's happening um to somebody who doesn't who's never done etching they're probably like oh that sounds like yeah so long and so boring and (laughs) and tiresome but actually within each process it's it's almost um I don't know it's quite um can't think what the word is like it's quite a therapeutic process Mm. it gets you to stop and really kind of concentrate and just put all your energy into one plate Mm. or whatever the process is that
1: you're doing yeah so can you tell me more about your kind of inspiration with these works you've mentioned kind of decaying buildings and sort of crumbling warehouses and stuff where did all of that come from
2: it came from when I first moved to Bristol. So um, I grew up in Wilkshire, which is like a kind of like a small town in the countryside, which really beautiful. Uh, but I came here to study my master's and it was this one particular building uh, which is behind Shed on the river. And it was this crumbling form that looked like a castle or mm. like a really kind of fragmented castle. And it was, it just looked really out of place. Um, so I spent a bit of time in the record office in Bristol trying to find information about this building, and I discovered that it used to be a gatehouse to an old jail, but it also was a, an, an execution platform. Oh, wow. So I had spent weeks kind of to this place drawing, and I've become a bit obsessed with it. And I made this whole body of etchings, turned it into like a book, and. Then I was like, okay, well, there's more of these places and there's no one documenting them. So Mm. I then spent weekends just going out, doing this term, like thing called psychogeography. If you've heard of that term where you just wander the city streets looking for something in particular or some inspiration. So I was coming across these abandoned buildings and then, you know, I'll start to record it. I'll go back and then scaffolding has gone up and they've been pulled down because Mm. all of a sudden Bristol's super trendy and people are moving here and they want to build on land so I, I kind of got through the got through kind of what was left in Bristol the, the buildings and now have been looking more into the industrial kind of archaeology of the area mm-hmm. so going into um like uh, last year I went to Fusil Ironworks which is in this kind of valley and you wouldn't even know it's there but in you know maybe 200 years ago they would have been making raw iron and you know, um, yeah. equipment and stuff to go to the war and it you know that's just kind of completely faded away. Um, so yeah, my interest has kind of shifted from the kind of city urban decay into more kind of places that have this real industrial heritage to it. Mm-hmm. So going into Wales, looking at the coal mines, down to Cornwall, looking at tin mines. Cool. And all these fascinating places where if you they're like shared playgrounds for, for photographers, for arsons, mm-hmm. for graffiti artists, for printmakers, um, to kind of experience a forgotten place. Um mm-hmm. and you know, when when nature is taking over, that's kind of the the kind of there's this real um balance between structure like hard structural lines of architecture to then the softening of the the you know the nature that's creeping in through the broken windows and you know mm. through the roofs and trees that are just in the middle of buildings and you're like this is surreal. Mm. <laughs> And it captures like imagination, and you start thinking of all these narratives of maybe the people that once were there before me, or that used to work there, and mm. kind of gives me a chill sometimes, like the ghosts of you know the past,
1: yeah, you know, walking amongst. And why why is printmaking, or what are the reasons that you find printmaking a good medium for trying to communicate some of those stories?
2: I think. Um, I suppose it relates to what I'm recording, so when I'm using etching, it's an enforced decay, which you know we as humans, we have that impact on the landscape, and I think the amount of textures and marks that I can achieve through etching in particular mm. does um kind of re- replicate those found in those places that I'm recording. And also it's like the power of the multiple. Do you know print has a really like throughout throughout years print's been used to disseminate information and knowledge. And you know, as a painter, you sell a painting that you don't have any more of a painting. But as a printmaker, I can choose to print 50 off one image, mm-hmm. and you know, that can go out to 50 people or can be seen by a wider audience. So I think for me, printmaking allows that that spread of um. Of knowledge of these places that are sadly kind of, yeah, being disregarded and fading.
1: project a kind of spotlight project that really sort of typifies your work have you got any standout examples to share I think
2: it would be the uh, the fading city um project that I worked on uh that kind of span from September 2019 and March 2020 right before COVID hit mm. and during that period I was making multiple trips to Birmingham jewellery quarter um, and when I was invited to take part in the project I was like Birmingham like what <laughs> but then I was walking around the jewellery quarter and it was absolutely a stand by the the architecture in that area but I suppose not many people really notice or mm. um I don't know so um I was invited into two buildings that were in a state of flux and were about to be redeveloped and stripped of all their ornate detail so these buildings were built in particular for jewelers so that they could set stones with optimum light so the windows are absolutely massive built by the victorians and you know the attention to detail that didn't need to be in these buildings were there just because they loved the aesthetical values Mm. Um, so kind of using etching as a way of capturing these places before that they are they are van they're like vanishing. And the prints were exhibited in a place called the Hive, which was an old factory. So it was a big space with um high ceilings. And so I was like, I'm gonna fill this space. So I made these gin- like, ginormous etchings that I hadn't made, I haven't kind of attempted before. Mm. And I recently just took on my own studio space. So I had the space to work large scale. Um so the plates were it was what were they 80 by 60 so it was two plates that made up one image and so I made two big etchings and a series of smaller ones and then three silk monotypes which were three meters by one meter that hung in the space people could walk kind of around and there was this like transient quality to them Mm -hmm. um so wanted it to feel like Um, to resemble kind of how I felt in that space where it isn't transient and there's this real energy and atmosphere and kind of um, uh, wanted that to be in the exhibition and during that exhibition we did like a couple of talks about our fading heritage and the city and a bunch of workshops and it was just really cool to engage with people with um, kind of this history of well, this kind of the fascination of decay and realising that actually other people do have this obsession. It's not just me. Um, <laughs> It's quite a few. I'm <laughs> like one of those people that say to, like I'm going on holiday with a friend, I'm like, oh, I've just, I have done some research and there are quite a few abandoned buildings that I would like to
1: go to. <laughs> nice. <laughs> was there kind of anything surprising that came out of that project? Did people say anything that you weren't expecting? I think it
2: was the... um the amount so in one of them there was the it was like they had just shut the door and decided to down tools. So what was surprising in that space was that it was untouched. So it was like a museum of the past wow. and felt really um it was quite a special moment because not everybody gets to see behind these places. So it's quite a privileged moment to walk into a space and see all the tools and um in and I got to I also spoke to um, a gentleman that was a drawer in the jewelry quarter for like 50 years. Mm. And that had been his profession, his whole life. And he was telling me little stories. He was taking me a tour of the building and telling me stories about how they would, um, you know, every year they would sweep up the floor and they would do a big burn to try and get all the amount of the, amount of the uh, metal still. So kind of smelting it back down mm. and then taking me to the basement where they would burn all the rubbish to get the metal out and you know there was you know smoky coal marks still on the walls and they had you know writing of who would have done that burn and signed it so there's these whole signatures um and yeah that that was really surreal um and like you know they had all these old communication devices still in place so instead of like a phone going up doing like such and such is here for you they had these like kind of like really weird cones that you spoke spoke through and then they could hear it upstairs. I'm like, what? (laughs) Some pre-mobile phones or, I don't know, any kind of, yeah, yeah, kind of mobile devices, telephone devices.
1: Yeah.
2: So those moments that were really surprising um, and all the dyes that were still there and Mm. learning about how the jewellery was made and, um, yeah, it was really kind of a special moment.
1: Mm. Yeah. the abandoned thing is interesting like i mean i live in central london and there, like absolutely nothing here is abandoned because every single square inch has been built on and capitalized yeah <laughs> for luxury flats i don't know do you think do you think we're at risk of sort of losing these sort of um relics to the past
2: I do I, I do feel like that and I feel any city I go to it almost feels like you could be in your own home city because they will almost becoming sand like the standard so you know, I could be in I don't know say the centre of Denmark and I'm in the centre of Bristol and mm. you know there's um and yeah we're not I think we are building at such a rapid rate I mean, it's quite frightening how fast that we do build, and things are going up, and it's quite cheap building materials, and we're not repurposing old spaces, mm-hmm. and they're just being knocked down and put up these really kind of, in my opinion, not particularly aesthetic
1: mm-hmm. kind of
2: looking, um, yeah, buildings. So yeah, I think there is a there is a there is um, a worry of everything being quite sterile and similar,
0: mm-hmm. and not
2: having the. You know like when you go to the jewelry quarter do you realize you start to realize the detail that was you know like the um, they were they would paint opposite walls of the buildings bright white so that it reflected the sun into the space so that they had more light to set the stones Amazing. and you know that's not gonna you're not gonna get those kind of small details in urban spaces anymore it's going to be very similar like kind of concrete and glass
1: Sure. And is that maybe as well a symptom of, you know, those kinds of crafts being pushed out of city spaces, you know?
2: Yeah, I think you're right because I know more and more craftspeople that can't afford to be in city centres anymore because the rates are just going up and yeah. more creatives are finding themselves in small pockets in more rural areas. Yeah, um, yeah so I think our city centres, although I'm interested to see... Um, how cities kind of come back from COVID Mm -hmm. and the pandemic, because they're going to have to be repurposed somehow. And I think it will be the arts that do regenerate those spaces. We can't have, you know, shops, people are going to be online shopping or working from home more, more, I think, than beforehand. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've got friends who do work in retail and they're like, well, my shop's being closed down because they realise no one is actually going to be shopping anymore because, people that would have used those spaces are people that would have worked in the city and popped there at lunchtime or after work. So I think it will be down to the creative arts sector to kind of regenerate these spaces. Mm. Um, so I don't know, it's going to be it's going to be a funny one to see the future of urban spaces and landscapes.
1: Yeah, but hopefully some great opportunities, you know, yeah. just populate the tower blocks with a whole load of artists. <laughs> yeah. I'm just
2: imagining, like, how nice it would be to have a warm studio space in this <laughs> different city, <laughs> not on the outskirts in an industrial warehouse. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: that's the future well actually it'd be really nice to ask you about your future you know what have you got planned next I know it's very hard to make any plans at the moment um but with the uncertainty of lockdown and stuff but but yeah what what are you hoping to kind of look into next
2: so I've um because of the pandemic I was able to actually pause and kind of um I guess adjust my what I would say is my, my kind of morals as an artist. So mm. before lockdown, I was approached by WWF to work on a project about deforestation, which at the time I had I didn't really have any time to, to even look into it. Mm. But then obviously I had all this time on my hands because everything got cancelled. And um, I started a project with um, a screen printer in Glasgow and we've started this collaboration called Tipping Point and we're making a series of works that look at looks at endangered habitats globally that are at risk of kind of being completely um you know burnt down or um you know change into agricultural land um so we're we're kind of make, we're we are slowly kind of making our way through this project and we have nearly finished our first print based on the amazon rainforest and we're using two processes in particular so he's a screen printer so james is screen printing with a glow in the dark pigment. So it charges in the daytime and at night it shines really brightly. Cool. And on top I'm then printing a lithographic image. So two images are combined on the same surface. Um, so that's a really cool project to work on. And I'm also working with an architect and we've started mapping basically all the ruins in the southwest and there are tons (laughs) so we're like wow this is a big project (laughs) so trying to really understand what are the most important buildings to record and make work about Mm. Um, they're mainly kind of linked to industry and that kind of fade the fading heritage side of it so lots of old textile mills um which are fascinating places to visit um mm. the most recent one I went to is in Wales and it's an old woolen mill and that was surreal that it was this old kind of collapsed building by a river but inside there was these spools of wool that had been preserved over time like their colors were still so intensely bright it was just very bizarre wow. but yet the roof was caved in there was water pouring you know it's just like but yet there was these walls Balls of wool, um, you know, in kind of all neatly organised. Yeah. yeah. Like, and there's rusty machinery. Like all the machinery is still there, being completely overtaken by ivy and all different other natural forms. Um, so those kind of spaces are real golden. Mm-hmm. Uh, so looking at those types of buildings to kind of capture and record, um, and we plan to exhibit the work. Um, hopefully maybe the end of this year or next year when there's definitely, we can definitely kind of go into gallery spaces mm. and and be
1: with people. Here's hoping. <laughs> so people have, um, <laughs> yeah. have enjoyed hearing about these sorts of processes. Uh, it, can people do printmaking at home? How can people kind of oh. get involved? So I run a
2: collective called Bristol Print Collective. So I run it with um, a printmaker called Victoria Wilmot and we've been running for five years now. And our ethos is DIY print. So teaching people how to print at home. So before COVID we popped up in various locations. So cafes, community centers, and we would rock up with pasta makers, um, wooden spoons. So just really kind of low key ways of making a print at home and that kind of demystifies mm-hmm. what an intaglio print is when you just tell someone to scratch a piece of tetra pack, you know, an old oakley carton, and we'll whack it through a pasta maker. Yeah. Like that is what I'm essentially awesome. doing in my studio, but <laughs> like a much <laughs> low-key version. <laughs> um, so if people want to uh, kind of print at home, we also sell home printmaking kits, so liner cut kits and uh, dry point kits. And they can just type in Bristol Print Collective online and they will come up. Um, We also have a series of online workshops coming up soon. So um, you can order a kit and then um, kind of join a bunch of us and printing at home, which has been really fun. We did a Zoom one in january on botanical printmaking and we got people to order their pasta makers before the workshop and it was just a zoom full of people frantically printing plants with pasta machines i'm like if, if covid hadn't appeared, i would not be witnessing the hilarious sight
1: amazing really
2: moments where you're like this yeah this is bizarre but brilliant
1: <laughs> that sounds awesome um, and if people want to look you up and have a have a look at your work, where can they find you online? Uh so they can find me um on Instagram, which is Jumma underscore gunning
2: underscore printmaker. Um, and that then links to my website. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm mostly active on Instagram. I do have a Twitter, but I kind of
1: don't really tweet I just look (laughs) look (laughs) in the background yeah (laughs) amazing well thank you so much for um for talking to me today it's been really awesome to chat to you about your processes and sort of reflections on how we can maybe think more about the world around us um and particularly the places that we live because boy do we live where we live right now (laughs) I feel like A lot of people who are moving out of
2: city centres yeah. into green spaces, mm. I think, mean, with a fear that this isn't going away.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah. Well, we'll find out if they're right or not. But um, yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Well, no, thanks for having me. It's been lovely to speak to you. So that was the fabulous Gemma Gunning on printmaking. Definitely check out her website and social media. And if you are spending any time printmaking this lockdown, then why not send us a photo of what you've been up to? You can do so via social media. We're on Twitter at RealTalk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, and on Instagram at HandmadePod. That's everything for this episode. As always, it would be awesome if you could like and subscribe to the podcast on all of your podcast apps to keep in touch with us and never miss a future episode. If you want to support with a one-time donation, you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. You can donate as much or as little as you like and a huge thanks to everyone who's already done so for helping to keep us going. Thanks as well to Dave Shepherd for our awesome cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next time I'll be talking to forensic jewellery expert Maria McLennan. So until then, take care and I'll speak to you next time on Handmade.